All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at the sixth chapter this evening. Uh, if you remember the last time we were together, we looked at chapters 4 and 5. And 5 was when David, remember, he was king over just the tribe of Judah, of the 12 tribes. He was just king over one of the tribes, Judah. And he was in Hebron and um, for seven and a half years, David had ruled over Judah and he was king over just that one tribe. But you remember after the death of Ishbosheth, who was King Saul's youngest son, he was the son that was placed on the throne really by Abner, who was really the power behind the throne. Abner, if you remember, was the commander of Saul's army. And so finally, in chapter 5, we saw that David, um, all of the tribes come together, all of Israel, including Judah, of course, they come together at Hebron. They anoint David king over the entire nation. Uh, even amidst the, the suspicion that somehow David might have had something to do with you know, uh, the death of Abner and even the death of Ishbosheth, which he did not, of course. And I find it interesting that usually on the, on the cusp of something really awesome, on the cusp of something really prophetic even, there's always this trouble that precedes it. Have you ever noticed that in your life? Whenever God is about to do something, you'd better believe that the devil takes attention and he is very active in trying to, if he can't thwart the attempt or thwart what God wants to do, which he cannot ultimately, but he will still try, the least he can do is discourage. The least he can do is make it somehow emotionally maybe a little less significant. Um, he will do everything he can to spoil the ride, right? <laughs> That's his job. That's what he does. He's a destroyer. He's a liar. He's a murderer. Jesus said from the very beginning it was so. And so David finally comes into his reign in Hebron. And we know that he started when he was 30 years old. He began to reign in Hebron. And then ultimately David dies at 70 years of age. 70 years of age. So he ruled and reigned over Judah and over all of Israel for a total of 40 years. I find it interesting that Saul reigned for 40 years, David reigned for 40 years, and his son, David's son Solomon, reigned also for 40 years. It's kind of interesting. That's a long time. That's a long time. There were no term limits back then. No two terms of six years or eight years and you're done. No, he was king until he died. And so we get now, and, and, and after David had come to be king, remember that he went up to Jerusalem, which was a Jebusite city. And remember, David had made the promise that whoever could conquer or begin to get into the Jebusite city, which the Jebusite city is uh, Jabus, it was called Jabus, but we know it as Jerusalem today, but it's on the higher part of Mount Moriah. And to get up into that place, it was very difficult. In fact, the Jebusites said that the, 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 the place was so impregnable that even the blind and the lame could defend it. Even the blind and the lame of, Jeb, of, of the town of Jeb, Jeb, Jabus, or Jerusalem at that time. And you remember that Joab found a water shaft in the Gahon Spring. And we visit this when we go to Israel. And you can actually, I had a um, 
maybe sometime I'll show you the video, but we, we actually go to this spring and on the inside of the city walls, and you can look down and see where Joab crawled up this water shaft. It's called Warren Shaft now because a man, um, Charles Warren, found this place, and this is how De, uh, Joab was able to climb up this, this shaft where they would put down pails of water and bring up water inside the city. And that's how the city was breached. And that's how David took control of the city because before they even knew what happened to them, they were, they were already in great peril because all the armies, you know, they got up one by one over a period of time and they took it over without even a, uh, too much of a problem. And so the, finally, they, he takes over uh, Jerusalem. He calls it Zion, which literally is the king or, or the, the city of David. It's on the southern part. If you were to look at a map of Israel or Jerusalem specifically, the temple used to sit right on the Temple Mount. Right now we got this ugly thing up there. It's called the Dome of the Rock. <laughs> it's that gold thing that's on the cover of all the, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing to look at. But um, that's where the temple used to be in that area. But right south of that is the city of Zion. And it's a little sliver of land that comes out, you know, a little compared to the rest of it. But that was called the city of David, Zion. And that's where David had his palace. And in 2005, they uncovered that whole thing. And now you can go visit it and you can see where David's palace really was. They found all kinds of artifacts. Really wonderful place to visit. So that's where David lived. And that's where David's palace was. And so now we get into, and, and immediately after that, excuse me, after David had conquested Jerusalem, the, the enemy begins. The fight begins. And the, the Philistines, remember David was confederate with the Philistines for a certain amount of time. And now they find out that he's king over all of Israel. And so David goes and he fights, Jeru or fights the Philistines. On two different occasions, he defeats them. And so they kind of know that their days are numbered, but they're not going to be defeated yet. It would take some time before David would finally subdue the Philistines for good, but he ultimately would do that in his reign. And so now, after defeating the Philistines, we get to chapter 6, and let's just go ahead and read it through, and then we'll go back and take a look at it. Notice with me in verse 1, it says, Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And so they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, they drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
And so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came up into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked out through a window and saw David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And so they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings, peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And so all the people departed, everyone to his house. And then David returned to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me instead of your father and all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor." And therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death, to the day of her death. And so we see this uh, wonderful moment. This, it's really a watershed moment, not only in the life of, of King David himself, but also in the life of Israel as a nation. You know, now that David had finally come into the, the, his reign, the only thing that was really left for him, really, to kind of feel like this is finally completed and that God is in this is to bring the ark from, um, or from um, Abinadab there in Kirjath-Jerim and bring that into Jerusalem. It was, just, it was just like the last thing that needed to happen. And so David obviously was very excited, and you can't blame him, really, can you? I mean, have you had that moment when... You know, you've been waiting for something for so long, and maybe something's been promised to you. Maybe it's taken a long time to come to pass, and finally it comes to pass, and there's such a relief in your heart that finally it's just like, oh, finally. You know, it's like paying off a mortgage. <laughs> you know, when you finally do that, you're just like, oh. Then you go out and, you know, buy a boat on your home equity or something, you know. I don't know. But anyway, so... This, this is a very significant moment in the life of David and Israel. And you recall, just to give you a quick tour, if you will, of the Ark of the Covenant, 
the Ark of the Covenant was really the symbol of the presence of, of God. He, he was, you know, because the Lord says, I will meet you between the cherubim. And that's where they had their offerings. And uh, the Ark was a significant part of their worship. It was the foundation, the centerpiece, if you will, of the tabernacle. And even the high priest would come in once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer blood on the mercy seat, which was the lid of that Ark of the Covenant, where the, the two cherubim overshadowed, looking down upon the mercy seat, where the blood was atoned for. And so it was a very significant piece to the children of Israel. And if you remember, when we were in 1 Samuel, the 4th and 5th chapter, Actually, chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel, we looked at when the Philistines had come out to attack the Israelites, the Israelites did a really foolish thing. Remember, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle was in Shiloh at that time. And the children of Israel go out to war against the Philistines, and they went to Ebenezer, which is right next to Aphek. And in that battle, remember the, the, the Israelites were feeling a little bit outnumbered, feeling a little insecure. So what do they do? They, they, they grab the Ark of the Covenant out of Shiloh and they bring it to Ebenezer, hoping that it would save them. And I, I, I emphasize the word it because that's the way it says in the scripture. that They were hoping that it would save them. But who is it really that's saving them? Is it the Ark or the God of the Ark? We know who, what the answer is, right? It's the God of the ark. He is the one who saved them, not the piece of furniture. And so this ark gets, the Israelites get badly defeated. The ark gets stolen from them by the Philistines, one of the worst things that could ever happen. And you remember they brought that ark from the Ebenezer. They brought it down uh, south to Ashdod. And remember, as a result of it being there, God had placed such terrible plagues on the Philistine cities, Ashdod and Ekron and Gath, and some of these cities where it visited. It kind of went on a world tour in a sense. And every place it went, the men of, and women of the city, they broke out in, um, well, let's just be honest, hemorrhoids. They had hemorrhoids. They had um, uh, boils on their skin. It was just a horrible plague. And, and God struck them with that in Ashdod. And so they said, well, let's get this out of Ashdod. Let's send it to one of our other friends in uh, the Philistine city. So they sent it to Gath. Same thing breaks out there. And they're like, we got to get this thing out of our town. So what do they do? They send it to another Philistine town. You think they'd kind of get the picture that it's probably not a good idea that any of them have it. But anyway, so they sent it from Gath and they sent it to Ekron. Same thing breaks out, unfortunately, for them. So they finally get the idea, you know what, we're just going to take uh, some cows and we're going to build a new cart and we're going to harness those cows to this cart. We're going to stick the ark on top of it and we're going to let it go where it's going to go because we just got to get it away from here because we don't want to send this gift to somebody else. So <laughs> they're going to put this on a cart and certainly the cows, supernaturally, they go on the road and they find their way to Beth Shemesh, or I'm sorry, to, uh, yeah, to Beth Shemesh. And along with it, some offerings of gold mice and golden tumors that they had made as symbols of their pain. And the men of Beshemesh, remember, they looked inside the ark and God judged them for it. And so the men sent the ark now again to Kirjath-Jerim, where it remained in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. And this is really the place that David is going to retrieve it from, is from the house of Abinadab. But just going further on in history here, we know that David will try in his first attempt, and we're going to read that tonight, up to verse 11 is really David's first attempt 
to bring the ark from Abinadab's house. And we find out that he, uh, obviously the Lord intervenes and, and strikes Uzzah to death because of their error and, and how they were carrying it. And then David, it, we'll, we'll learn this from other passages, he, he has a second attempt, finally does bring it into Israel and puts it into a tabernacle that he himself had made. I'm certain that the tabernacle of Moses, which was several hundreds of years old by now, had just kind of wore out, but David made a new tabernacle for it in uh, the city of David there in Zion. And so the ark stays there until Solomon ultimately builds the temple, and then the Ark of the Covenant gets put into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, where it remained for a few hundred years until we hear nothing more about it. There's really no trace of it after a certain point of time. And that's a really interesting thing. Some believe that the Ark of the Covenant right now is, is either in heaven, that God took it. Some people believe that it's actually buried under the foundation of the Temple Mount today, which is very it's possible. There's a lot of labyrinths and a lot of places where it could be there, hidden behind rocks. You, you just never know. It's, some people believe it's in Ethiopia, which I don't really believe that's the place. But either way, the Ark of the Covenant is MIA right now. Nobody knows where it is. And so this time frame really, um, you know, it was in the possession of the Philistines for seven months. It tells us that in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And then it goes to Abinadab's house in Kirjath Jearim. It's there for 20 years. It tells us that in 1 Samuel 7, verse 2. And then after this initial attempt that we read already tonight, David tries to bring it to Jerusalem, the death of Uzzah. He takes it into the house of Obed-Edom, and it's there for three months. While David is scratching his head, he's praying, he's examining himself. Why, Lord, did you allow this to happen? And then finally, he understands what the problem was. He corrects the condition and finally brings it into Jerusalem. And there's a great joy, and we'll read about that um, in this chapter. But, um, and so let's go ahead and look at it. Notice in verse 1, it says that David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. Now, why would he gather that many men to go get the ark? Well, the answer is quite simple. Kirjath-Jerim is, is, is west of Jerusalem, uh, roughly 10 miles. It's closer to the Philistine boundary or the, the border of the, where the Philistines are. So David's thinking, if I'm going to go bring this thing and the Philistines hear about it, they're going to come after us. So I'm going to make sure i got my bases covered. So he has all these men go with him in case there is a skirmish of some kind. David's like, this ark will not be taken from us again, right? We're going to bring this thing back home where it belongs to be. And so David arose, verse 2, and, went, and with all the people who were with him from Baale, Judah. This, this name of this town, Baale, Judah, is really Kirjath Jerim. That's the name of the place. It's, it's known by both of those names. And so they want to bring up the ark from there, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, the Jehovah of hosts. This is the, the, the name of God. I, I love this idea because there's really no greater name than the name of Jehovah, right? There's no greater name among, among men whereby we must be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. But the name of God is, is so important. It speaks of his, uh, of his character. It speaks of who he really is. The manifestation of all that God is. That ark signifies that. It symbolizes that. The very presence of the creator of the universe. 
And so they're going to bring that. Notice, who dwells between the cherubim, where the blood sacrifice is placed. That's where he dwells, and that's where he meets us. Right? That's why the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, is so important to us. Because that's where we met him, is at the cross. There's no way you can meet Jesus any other way. You can't crawl up the wall to reach God some other way. There's no other way you can get to him but through the blood of Christ. No other way. And so they set the ark on a, of God on a new cart, verse 3. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, notice they drove the new cart. Underline new cart. <laughs> it's really important that you get this, and I think most of you know where we're going with this tonight. But notice it was a new cart. A new cart. God permitted the Gentiles, who were ignorant of God's ways and his methods of doing things, they were completely unaware of that. And God allowed the Philistines to get away with this, but he wouldn't allow his own people to get away with it. He was, I believe God was going to allow it in his grace, but there came a point, we'll look at this tonight, where they crossed the line. They went too far. And that's when God says, I can't, that's a line I can't allow. And I love this because he even allowed, God allowed his own people, even though they were instructed hundreds of years prior, how the Ark of the Covenant should be carried, how it should be traveled. He told them in advance. And yet for some reason, at this point, they were kind of like not aware of that. And, and I think the reason is very is easy. You know, Where did they learn to move the Ark around with a cart and oxen? The enemies of God. The enemies of God. Remember, they saw the ark coming. The men of Bathshemesh are looking up in the distance, and they see the, the, the cows coming, and the, they're yoked together, and they look, and they're like, what is that? And on a cart, a brand-new cart, it comes to them, and nobody was hurt, nobody was harmed. They, they take it off the cart. The Levites do. They're in um, Kirjath-Jerim. They take it off, and nobody seems to be harmed. And, and so they're thinking, you know, if the Philistines can do it, we can do it. I mean, after all, isn't it easier to take the jet airplane over the ocean rather than riding a bike? So much more convenient to put it on a cart. Maybe even strap on a little motor on the back. Low emissions, of course. Much more convenient to pull it by a cart. It there, gets there a lot faster. Much easier, too. Easier on everybody except the cows. Right? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. This is where they learned to do it. This is where the Jews had learned to do it. Even though they knew better, I think as time went on, you know, the ark really hadn't been something that, that had really been in their life for quite a while. So it's easy to forget. And, and, and I can say this from, of myself. When you're not used to doing something and you haven't really been thinking about something for a while, you tend to lose a little bit of what it was about and how it should be used. I was reminded that uh, yesterday as I had this uh, power washer that I was going to power wash something, and it had been in my basement prepared and set up, you know, winterized and everything in the basement, and a year goes by, and I never, I haven't used it. So I had to get out the manual when I got it out again. 
<laughs> you know, I had to get it out and I had to read it because I haven't been dealing with it. And the same thing with the people of God. They, it was um, kind of out of their mind, out of sight kind of thing for quite a while. So notice in verse, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, notice this is where they learn about it from their enemies. It says, and, and this is the advice of the Philistine priests and the diviners. You know, after the emeralds and the, the boils had been breaking out on the people of the, of the Philistines, you know, the diviners and the priests say, therefore, make a new cart. This is, what, this is how you're going to get it out of here. Do this. Make a new cart, make two milk cows which never have been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of, of the Lord and set it on the cart. Put the articles of gold which are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side, and then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, and it happened to us by chance. So they were very superstitious. And then the men did so. They, they, they hooked up the two cows. They put it on the new cart, shut up their calves, and they set the ark of the Lord on the cart with the chest and the golden rats and the images of their tumors. And the cows headed straight for Beth Shemesh. And so just stopping there, this is where the children of Israel learned it. And it's, it's interesting, I find, that oftentimes even we as Christians, you know, we have to be really careful because... Sometimes uh, people who don't know the Lord or just our culture has that effect on us. We see them doing something and we think, well, I, have the, I can do that too. I can still drink alcohol. I can still smoke cigarettes. I can still hang out in bars like, like, like those who don't know Christ. And unfortunately, we learn these things. And we've been learning them since we were young. We, we have this nature, this old nature built within us. But we have to be very careful that we stay close to the Lord and not allow ourselves to be learning from the world, but rather have the, the world learning from you, right? So God wasn't going to let the Israelites get away with this because they were told in the, New, in the Old Testament, excuse me, turn with me to Exodus chapter um, uh, 25. And we're just going to look at a few verses before we go on. Exodus chapter 25. You're not used to flipping in your Bibles, are you? I'm usually, I usually just read it to you, but it's good for us to go here. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 10. God gives them the prescribed way that the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved. In fact, all of the articles in the Holy of Holies, in the Holy Place and in the Holy of Holies, they were made with golden rings on the, on the outside corners. So that these things, all of the articles in there were overlaid with gold. They were all made of acacia wood. They were supposed to be born on these poles, these acacia wood poles, overlaid with gold, put on the shoulders of the Levites, and that was the only way that they were to be transported. And they weren't even able to touch those things. Even the Levites weren't to touch them to open the ark and look inside and see the two tables of stone written with the finger of God. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? There was no chisel marks, do you understand? That, that would mean the work of a man's hand. I, I bet it was in some kind of script and it was just like a laser with God's finger. I don't know, I just, I love, I get carried away. Does, is anybody weird like that? I, I'm weird like that. Okay, one person. Okay, great. 
All right, we'll have lunch later. <laughs> yes, but look at Exodus 25, verse 10. It says, and this is what God says. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it. And shall make on it a molding of gold all around. And notice, verse 12, You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that they may be carried by them. So, and it tells us in other passages that the Levites were to do that. Not just anybody was to carry this. These were the Kohathites, the, uh, a strain of the Levites. And what I think is interesting is it seems that the Lord in his mercy might have allowed it to be transported this way had it not been for the ox stumbling and Uzzah putting his hand on the ark. And it seems that this action was the final straw for the Lord. He you know, and, and I love that about God. There, there's, he's a God of grace, right? Many people see the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as two separate gods. You know, the one in the Old Testament was just smoking people, just killing people. And then the, the one in the New Testament is, is, you know, oh, it's okay. And, you know, there's no problems, you know. And, uh, but, but they're not. They're one and the same. The same God over all things. And can you see the grace of God in this? They weren't even supposed to be hauling it like this. And God allowed it. And David, on his first attempt, as we're reading tonight, he's dancing before the Lord. And I bet the Lord in his heart was just so pleased with David and the heart of the people. They were really excited. They were doing the, a right thing in a wrong way, but their heart was right in it. But there came a point, and I think they could have brought that all, that all the way to Jerusalem, and God may have not have said a word to them. But there was a line that was crossed. And that was when the oxen stumbled and, or a, the wheel hit a rock or something and the thing began to tip. And Uzzah, and it was probably a natural reflex perhaps, he reached up to steady the ark and he put his hands on it and God smote him, killed him right there on the spot. And that's hard to understand, but there is a line there's a line that God will not cross. And that line was made known, made known that day. But notice that God is a God of grace. Even still, even though they did it in, in error, in ignorance, even though they knew, but they had forgotten, they did it in ignorance, I believe. And I believe that's true because of the way David responded after. He says he feared the Lord. He was angry. He didn't understand why. And if he didn't understand why, then he was truly not thinking about it, correct? And nobody else was either. I mean, the ark had come to them on a, on a new cart. Why not bring them, the, you know, much more convenient, much more convenient. There's a phrase uh, that's in the Bible. It says, to whom much is given is much required. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And that's in Luke's gospel. But God is a God of grace. He's a God of grace. In fact, Hebrews tells us, doesn't it, that he, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, he changes not. He's immutable. He cannot change. We change, and thank God for that. I pray that every one of us are continuing to change, but he cannot change. He can't learn anything because he's omniscient. He knows all things. And I love that about God. Do you understand there's no being in the universe like him? 
Even the devil. Some like to elevate the devil higher than what he really is. Make no mistake, he's a powerful being. There's no doubt about it. And apart from God, we are toast against him. But with Christ, we are more than conquerors. In fact, Jesus, uh, the apostle, would say, greater is he that is in you. The Spirit of God indwelling you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan is a created being, a very intelligent and very uh, cunning, very deceptive, very good at what he does. My Lord, he is good at what he does. And everybody falls for the same thing. And for over uh, several thousands of years now, we've all done the same thing. And we keep doing the same things. He doesn't even need to bring out his palette and say, I'm going to choose a different color. No, he's got the primary colors there. He'll fall for that one. And he does. She'll fall for that one, and she does. And then it's so on it goes, so on it goes. And it's just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> the same bag of tricks. But Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And it brings me to this point is that God is a God, um, or the, the heart of worship is sacrifice. Notice they put this thing on a new cart. There was no effort. It was very easy. Do you understand? It was very easy to, to transport this thing now. They could put it on a bullet train and get it from here to Beijing in you know, not a short amount of time. It would it'd be easy. But is real worship, is real worship easy? Is it convenient? I find that real, true worship costs something. It always costs something and at the heart of worship is sacrifice. Never forget that. I, I hope I never forget that. Because if I worship God with my abundance, and it doesn't hurt me a little bit, I have to ask myself, am I really worshiping? And what do, you, what do I mean by that? You know, to make a statement like that, think of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham was up there on Mount Moriah and God says, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. And he goes to do it. And he's literally got Isaac tied down, who was much able to overpower his older father at that point. And he pulls up that knife and God intervenes. And Abraham knew that, Lord, if this is you and you wanted me to do this, you've got to do something because you made special and unique promises to me about my seed and the seed after me. And that my seed and the seed after me, that, that all the nations, through me, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And even the promise of the Messiah coming through my line. Do you realize how much was at stake there as, as, as Abraham raised that knife of flint to thrust in the chest of his son? That's, that's worship. You know what he was doing? He was saying, all the things that you've promised me, God, are at this moment, and I'm willing to just let it all go if that's really your heart. And the, fa the thing that blows me away is that he knew the voice of God that well. You and I sometimes, I think, well, I think I heard the voice of the Lord, right? But no, he knew the voice of God. He had had that relationship with God, and he knew the voice of God. And I pray that myself and for all of us that we know the voice of God and that we know it's not just something in our own thoughts that we're thinking. No, but to really know the voice of God and then to act on the voice of God and then for it to be what God wanted it to be. And he blesses us. And he blessed Abraham for that act of obedience, which was complete, uh, a bizarre thing because Abraham knew that that's the reason that, he was gonna, that God was going to curse the Canaanites because they did this kind of stuff. They did the, the human sacrifice. This was all pagan. 
So was that an act of worship? You better believe it was. He put everything on the line. He was going to take out his own son. And then he said, Lord, if I do this, I know you're going to have to do something. And, and when he interrupted, when God interrupted Abraham, Abraham realized that this was a picture. This was a type of something that was going to happen in the future. And we know that another father would do the same thing to his son on that same place, except this time he would follow through with it. Because Jesus was the only one who could die for our sin. So Abraham was, was like going through an act. I mean, it was a really serious thing to him, but God knew what he was going to do, and he knew what that event would foreshadow. That was a huge act of worship. What about in Mark chapter 12? You don't have to go there, but I'd write it down. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Remember the widow, as Jesus is in, the, in Solomon's temple, and he sees all the wealthy fat cats coming by with all their wads of hundreds, and they just throw them in the thing, and they make sure that everybody sees them, right? Everybody look at me. Now that everybody's looking, now I can put my big wad with the rubber band around it, and I got the bennies you know, on the outside. Everything underneath is ones, but I got the benny out in front, and I hold that up there, and I'm, check this out, and then I put it in the thing. And then the Lord sees this elderly woman who just had equivalent to a couple of cents. She had a couple, you know, two mites. Very insignificant copper coins. That's all she had. So she puts them in. And what did Jesus tell his disciples? He nudged them and said, hey, see what she did? He said, they put in of all their abundance. They got plenty more in the bank. That was, that was a drop in the bucket for them. But notice what she put in. That was all her living. Was that worship? Was that sacrifice? Yes, it was. And the Lord had respect to the woman and her worship. It's all relative, isn't it? Sometimes when I worship in song, you know, sometimes it can be a sacrifice of praise because my heart is not in it. Maybe I've come from the workplace, and I remember when I worked at Xerox, coming here and then leading worship, and my mind is overflowed with so many things, and I'm distracted, and I'm like, I've some, some days I felt like I was just going through the motions, I was just singing the songs and playing the chords, and I'm like, Lord, I have no idea what's happening here, if anybody's going to. And, and it's funny that the times where I was clueless, the people were worshiping. And I realized it has nothing to do with me. I mean, it's good that if I worship the Lord, I'm genuine in it. But even in my absent-mindedness, God blessed my sacrifice of praise because it was never about me to begin with. But he used me, even though I was not completely engage. Maybe by the last song, I started to warm up <laughs> in my heart. What about David? Let me read something to you. I would just write this down, and then we'll move on here. But this is a significant portion of Scripture. It's in, in this book, in 2 Samuel chapter 24. There's something really interesting that happened that I just want to read to you just to kind of solidify this idea. You remember at some point in David's ministry toward the end that he took a census and his, his, his cousin Joab warned against it because David's heart was lifted up in pride and, and he wanted to number the people. And so he did. And Joab went out, spent quite a bit of time going throughout Israel, getting the census. And the Lord visited Gad, one of David's seers or prophets, and basically told, and told Gad to go tell David, he says, I'm going to offer you three things, David, as a result of this sin. Seven years of famine shall come to you in your land, or 
Shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? And David was just completely heartbroken, realizing what, had, what he had done, was repentant. And he said, just let me fall into the hands of the living God. Lord, whatever you choose. And I love what God chose. He chose the quick thing. Instead of these other, the first and the second option, God chose the thing that would be over quickly. And I think he did that in his mercy because of David's heart. Of, of worship and his heart of compassion, his brokenness. He was genuinely broken, even though he had made the mistake. But God needed to deal with David on this. And you recall what happened, that the, an angel of, of, of God came over Jerusalem and all throughout Israel, and many people died as a result of that plague. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wicked, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and in my father's house. And so Gad told him to go uh, up to, um, Gad, uh, excuse me, Gad came to that day to David and said to him, Go erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Does that ring a bell? Remember the city the, the, of Jerusalem? It used to be called Jabus. He tells him to go take, now that he's king and the, and the things are going along, he says, go and take and build an altar on this site. And it was a man by the name of Aruna. It was his, it was his property. And so David's going to go up to there, this altar, and to stop the plague and, uh, of the people dying, he was going to go up there at God's instruction to build an altar, to make an offering, to stop the plague. And while he's going up there, Aruna's looking around going, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm out here threshing the wheat, and what are you doing? And David says, I, 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 need, I need this land. And Aruna, because his heart was so good, he's like, you know what, David? You just take whatever you want. You take this wonderful real estate up here on the hill that's really valuable to me. It's all yours. And he meant it. His, his heart was of, of worship. He was going to sacrifice it and give it to David. But I notice what David said in verse 24. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer a burnt offering of offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David, did you, let me read that again. I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Aruna was going to give it to him free of charge, and any one of us would be tempted to go, great, sign the deed over right now and get it notarized, because now it's going to be mine, right? And David said, no, I can't do it. He said, if it costs me nothing, I can't do it. And he offered him the, the right price. He offered him the going rate, if you will, for that land. And that land right now is the Temple Mount. That's what that real estate is that David purchased. Was it an act of worship? Was it a sacrifice? You better believe it. It's a lot of money that David paid for that. But he says, I can't do this and not have it cost me something. So at the heart of worship... And I bring that up because the, you know, they brought the ark in originally on a, new, on a new cart, on this new fancy thing. And I think of worship today in many churches, and it's just a big rock concert. And again, not to you know, get on anybody about that, but if that's all that it's about, you know, there's, there's churches where they have this huge worship team. There's lights and there's smoke. There's even people walking around with cameras. I've seen some of that. 
And the pastor gets up and he, he reads a psalm or he does a 15-minute sermonette and then let's just worship some more. And there's nothing wrong with worship, is there? But you know, when, 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 it, when it gets out of balance and the word of God is shunned and it's just all music and the lights and the smoke and the, the glitz and all that stuff, we've got to be really careful. But this cost him something. And real worship costs us. If it's real... There's a song by Michael W. Smith. I'm drawing a blank on the name of it. But one of the lines in it, he says, Don't let me forget, um, don't let me forsake sacrifice. Jesus, you be lifted high. I think it's called Be Lifted High. And I remember hearing that one day, and it just broke my heart. Because so often my worship personally wasn't like that. And then I thought, how often is my worship really sacrifice? And that was pretty convicting. And of course, it's nothing compared to the greatest sacrifice. Jesus on the cross, the God in human flesh, God incarnate, the word of God become flesh. That was the greatest act of Worship, the greatest act of sacrifice that could ever occur in the world, in the history of the universe, the greatest act of worship was a bloody mess on that cross that every one of us in this room would look at it and go, I can't look upon it. I don't want to be anywhere near it. And yet God says, I accept that. I accept that with all of my heart. I've planned it out in advance. I knew exactly what would happen. I even told the prophets, foretold of his sacrifice for hundreds of years, a few thousand years before it would actually come to pass. The greatest sacrifice, the greatest worship service stood and took place between two thieves. So verse 4, back in our text, it says, And they brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before it, before the ark. And then David and all the house of Israel, notice they played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, on of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, cymbals. And just think of the importance of worship. Worship is, you know, music is such an important part of our worship. That's why we spend 20, 25 minutes to a half hour. That's why it has a big part of our time. A third of our time here we're spending in worship. And David says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The very last verse of the very last psalm, that's what the word was. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Such an important thing to worship him in song. Get in the habit of worshiping him. Turn on your, your CDs when you're in your car. I love being in the car and singing my guts out. <laughs> Have you ever done that? You know, just you get in your car and there's no place on earth and you can do that and get away with it except for in your car. And especially if you take a trip out on 104 or 404 and you get way out there or just take uh, Browncroft and just keep going all the way out to 315 land and you just scroll through the hills and you're just going up and down and the sun's shining and you just got the windows rolled up, you got your favorite worship CD and you're just singing your heart out. I love those times. Those are my favorite times. Until you come up to a light and then somebody pulls up next to you and you're like... And then you look over and they're like... 
You know, they give you that look. So do it someplace where you can be not noticed. But even so, praise the Lord, right? Especially if they can hear, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, because you, know, you can hear music through cars now. You can hear everything. So praise the Lord. But worship, so important. And we know that it's more than just the singing of songs, isn't it? Worship is such a huge topic. It's more than just the singing of songs. It's the giving. Yes, even in our giving of our finances, when we tithe here at the church, that ought to be a sacrifice. That ought to be worship. That's why we, would, we used to do it, and it would be nice to get back to that perhaps, I don't know, to have it right in the center of the worship service so that we don't get the misunderstanding that this is just some kind of transaction we do apart from worship. No, we put it right in the center of our worship time. And there was a reason for that. Maybe we'll get back to that. I, I like that idea. So when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And you know, Uzzah, remember, and Ahio, they are the sons of Abinadab. This ark had been in their dads and their, their house for 20 years so I think after a while, they got kind of used to the ark being there, right? They became very familiar with it. They became so familiar with it that Uzzah had no problem. And, and I can imagine most of us would think, well, we don't want the ark of, of God to fall over and the tablets to roll out. Do you think God was upset or uptight about the box? Couldn't he have instructed David to build another box and overlay it with gold and put the tablets back in? Or even if the tablets were broken, do you think God would have a problem? Do you think he maybe even supernaturally could intervene as the thing went over? He just saw the thing go back up again, and they're going, could he have done that? Yeah, he could have. But that was God's problem, wasn't it? It was his problem. But notice Uzzah didn't have a problem reaching up and touching the ark. There's an old phrase that says, familiarity breeds contempt. When you become so familiar with something, you lose the fact of, of the, the preciousness, the specialness of it. It's sort of like, you know, uh, even a president maybe having his oldest son being one of his advisors. And the son now, he's in the Oval Office with his father. And instead of addressing him with all of the chiefs of staff all around him, instead of addressing him, Mr. President, he says, hey, Dad, familiarity breeds contempt. We become so familiar with things that we forget the role that we have and the role we don't have. We forget that there's still a way to approach things out of respect and out of, out of decency. And maybe that was what Uzzah's problem was. Maybe he had gotten so familiar with the art being around, he's like, this is no big deal. In fact, maybe it was even a little bit of a show for him because, hey, I was the one who protected God. I was the one who kept that thing from going. God says, there's nobody going to be um, holding me up. Nobody's going to hold me up. You let the ark fall. It's a box. I'm able to do whatever, whatever I want with that box. So then the anger, verse 7, the anger of the Lord, of Jehovah. Notice, that's what the, whenever you see the L-O-R-D in all caps, that's Jehovah. Jehovah God, God the Father, he was aroused against us, and God struck him there for his error. I like what it says in the NIV. It says that the Lord struck him because of his irreverent act. 
irreverent. He showed irreverence, a lack of reverence, a lack of respect for God by touching the ark that was potentially going to fall off the cart. And yet it seemed like a very natural, almost like an involuntary reaction, right? It's like if you see you know, something falling, you want to hold it or, or get out of the way and let it fall, depending on the size of it, right? And notice uh, one commentator said this. He said, a single punishment caused the people to experience a holy reverence for the Lord We saw the same thing in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. Just as the church was getting birthed, as it was just starting in its infancy, and then someone gives, sells a plot of land, I think it was Barnabas, he sells a, a, a plot of land and gives everything to the Lord. And he doesn't tout it, he doesn't blow trumpets. And yet Ananias and Sapphira saw the attention that he was getting, or maybe envious of him, and decided, we're going to do the same thing but let's hold back part of the price. So they, they sell a, something, and then they feign to give everything away to the Lord. And everyone's going, oh, they're so pious. They're so wonderful. What worshipers? And God says, no, they're not. They're not. They're lying to everyone and me. They're lying to me. And the Lord allowed them to be struck dead on the spot. Their sacrifice was a purification of what God was going to do. He was going to say, I'm not going to have this phony worship. And the ends never justify the means, right? It's never good to do a good thing in a wrong way. Rather, a good thing has to be done in the right way or a godly way. It must be done that way. Because God is just as concerned about the journey. He's concerned about the means as much or more so than the end result. If God wants to make, if God told you in advance that he was going to make you wealthy and you decide to help him out, you decide to do some crooked business on the side so that you'll be wealthy, the ends don't justify the means. God can do anything. He can take a life that is nothing and make it something. He can speak something into existence when previously there was nothing. Is he not God Almighty? Can't he do those things? He can. In Romans 15, it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. They were written for our understanding, for our encouragement. Also, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, it says, These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. These things are written so that we might learn. And that's why God had it written in Exodus. This is the way I ought to be worshipped. This ark cannot come in on a new cart, and God allowed it. Do you see the grace of God? I mean, can you see it? Because he was going to allow it. Because they were all excited. David was twirling and whirling and just completely lost in abandonment. And God says, and he saw the people. And you can imagine the heart of God just blowing up at that moment. And he's like, oh, they're, they're not doing what I told them to do. But you know what? They're genuine. They're so genuine, I just can't touch it, right? But there was a line, and they crossed that line. And notice verse 8, And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. 
And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. He was angry. He was frustrated. He thought he was doing the right thing. He knew that the Ark of God belonged in Jerusalem, where the center of worship was to be. He knew that it was the right thing. And not only that, but he was humiliated. This was a watershed moment in the history of the country. Do you realize that? It had never happened where they had the right, the right king on the throne at the right time in the right place. They wanted to do the right thing, but they did it the wrong way. And yet, people are lined up all along the road from Kirjath Jerim all the way to Jerusalem. They're lined up all along, and they're just praising God every step of the way as this thing is taken by the cart, you know, and they're just singing and dancing. And people are thinking to themselves, we're going to remember this day for the rest of our lives. We're going to tell of this event to our kids and our grandkids and our great grandkids. We will remember this event, this event was a watershed moment for them as a nation. And to think of how humiliated David was when as that ark was moving and all of a sudden that act happened with Uzzah, all of a sudden the cheering stopped, the trumpet stopped blowing, the timbrels stopped timbreling, <laughs> the music, everything came to a screeching halt and David's just, he's like, why did this happen? God, I thought you, I thought you wanted me to do this. This was the last thing to really secure the kingdom to me, Lord. You called me to this place, and I know you have. You, you spoke by Samuel. You spoke by Jonathan. You spoke in so many ways, and here I am, and now this. What is going on? And he was angry. He was frustrated. He was humiliated. And it says in verse 9 that David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of God come to me? And at this point, David was unaware of the reason. He really did not genuinely know. And why didn't Abiathar? Abiathar was that Levite who had traveled with David when he was running from Saul. He was a Levite. Shouldn't he have known this? Shouldn't he have come up to David right in the beginning as they were getting ready to put that thing on the ark and Abiathar comes up with David, I don't think that's a good idea. Why didn't he do it? Maybe because they saw the enemy do it. And it worked. And it was more convenient. Required no which is easier, to put the thing on the ark and let the cows do it and just go along and, you know, and, and worship? Or is it more by sticking that thing on your shoulders, four guys, one on each corner, and they lift that thing and they walk for 10 miles? Which is going to cost more? Which was what God wanted, even though it would require more energy, more effort, and probably give those guys a pretty good nod on their shoulder by the end of the day? So David, verse 10, would not move the ark of God with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. This man, Obed-Edom, his name means a servant of the God of Edom. A servant of the God of Edom. This may have been a man who was a Philistine who, who um, was loyal to David still. Remember, David had some Philistine loyalists to him when he was with the Philistines. And certainly this man now knows that David's king. It's very possible. He may have been from Gath, because he's a Gittite, which usually means that a person is from Gath. There are some who believe he might have been a proselyte to the Jewish faith from the paganism of Philistine. And there are some who even believe that he might have been a Levite himself. We don't really know too much about it, but... Let's go on to verse 11. So the ark remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. 
And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Wouldn't it be interesting, again, this is just a conjecture, but wouldn't it be just like God to, to bring this thing into a, uh, into a house of a man who was originally a Philistine, but turned to the Jewish faith? <laughs> That would be just like the Lord to do that, right? David, you're the, you're the king. You're right from the line of Judah. I'm going to come right straight through your line, but I'll allow this man who came from questionable origins, a pagan lifestyle, pagan community, a pagan family who had been worshiping idols, but now is converted, of course. I'm going to put it in his house. I don't know. It's just interesting. Now it was... Verse 12, that it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark out of the house of Obed-Edom into the city with gladness. I'd like for you to put in, right between, right after verse 12, I want you to put a scripture reference because we're going to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Put in your margin right there between verse 12 and 13, 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Verses 1 through 17, or just put First Chronicles 15, because what happens here at, right after this breach with Uzzah, this passage that we're looking at tonight doesn't tell us what happened in between those two attempts to bring the Ark of the Covenant in. It tells us, it gives us the ultimately what happened, it gives us the ultimate success story in Second Samuel 6. But notice what it says in 1 Chronicles 15. It says, David built for himself houses in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And David said, no one may carry the ark of God. Because remember, they, they, they brought it on a cart. And so in between verse 12 and 13 is, is some time, weeks, maybe a couple of months, where David's figuring this out, and he does. And it tells us right here in 1 Chronicles 15 what happened. He says, ah, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And David gathered all of Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And notice it says that David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites, and he lists a bunch of names here. And then he said to them, You are the heads of your father's houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. In verse 13, he says why? He says, For because you did not do it the first time. There's the problem. The first time we did this, guys, you didn't do it. I was ignorant of it, but nobody mentioned it. And here's why. You didn't do it the first time, and the Lord our God broke out against us. Because we did not consult him about the proper order. See, God is a God of order. He's not just justifying the ends by the means or, or the means by the, you know, to the ends. He, he's very clear about these things. And so it was, verse 13, back in our text, that when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Now it's going to be an it's going to be a worship service, and there's going to be a cost involved, isn't it? There's going to be time. Can you imagine? They got a 10-mile trip to make, and every six paces as they go, they were slaughtering animals along the way to atone for their sin as they were going. Can you imagine how long that took? It probably took all day. I bet those Levites are taking large steps. That's what I'd be doing. I'd be, taking, I'd be stretching out and... And notice, it says that David danced before the Lord with all of his might. 
and David was wearing a linen ephod. Certainly not feigning to be a priest at all. We know that the only king, priest, and, and prophet was Jesus himself. But we see a foreshadowing here of Jesus Christ through David. But David wasn't taking the place of a Levite. He was just being a king of Israel, completely blown out on this joyous occasion. And, you know, David now knowing that God was pleased. God was pleased now that he, they were doing it the right way. And they finally got it in there, into the, into the tent that he had made for it. And now it even became, it was more jubilant because now he knew that God was pleased with him. He was pleased with their, the way that they were doing it. Not just the fact that they got it there, but the, the means to the end. He, and, and God was pleased. I love this. We have the peace of God because we have peace with God. We've made peace with him by what? By means of the cross. Therefore, as Christians, as believers, we can have the peace of God that passes all understanding, right? We can have the peace of God when everything is falling apart, when the hurricane has destroyed your house, when the tornado has broken through, when you've lost a loved one, when you've smashed your car up and you don't have a job and your wife has left you and the dog has bit you and your pickup truck is burning oil. (laughs) You can have the peace of God. You can. Have the peace of God in the midst of storms. We know that. So David, notice verse 15, And all the house of Israel brought up the ark of God, was shouting with the sound of the trumpet. I would encourage you, we don't have time tonight, but mark in your margins of the Bible Psalm 24, because it talks about the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. That's a synopsis of that psalm, but David wrote, many believe, this psalm for that purpose of bringing that ark into Jerusalem. And it would be so fitting. Verse 16, it says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. I'm totally amazed and convicted by the worship of David. You know, I, I think our worship could be a little more lively. You know, honestly. And it's not the worship leader's fault. But, you know, just to, to really lighten up a little bit. If it gets too out of hand, we'll, we'll address it when it does. But you know what? I think we could stand to loosen up a little bit and be genuine in our worship. There, there is a fine line, and, and you, you understand what I'm saying, but the, you know, sometimes, I, I've been in churches, and we're not one of them, but I've been in churches where people are, it's like a mausoleum. Shouldn't we be joyful about our God? Shouldn't, it just, shouldn't we be clapping our hands and, and lifting our voices, regardless of how we sound? There was a woman many years ago who sat right in the front row, wonderful woman, and I know who she is to this day, and she's a wonderful gal, great heart of worship, a real worshiper, but she was tone deaf. And she would, and and, and I loved her dearly, and she would sing, and it would actually throw me off, because I'm I'm listening, I'm I'm singing in pitch, at least I think I am, right? I'm deceiving myself. But I'm, I'm trying to sing, and I hear someone singing way off key, and I'm like trying to get back to center again, and it was a real trial for a while. But her heart of worship blew mine away. And some days I thought she should be up there and I should be sitting. So, so don't worry about how you sound. Don't worry about how you look. Let's worship God again. 
Let's worship God again and not be so stiff and stifled and starched. Let's break out of it. Say, God, do it. And David, look at him. And real worship does that. It provokes people one way or another. They're either going to join you or they're going to criticize you of it. And there is a line. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. There are people who worship and they're writhing on the ground and doing all kinds of aberrant things. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking real, genuine, loving God. I could care less about who's sitting next to me. I'm just going to sing to you. You alone, God. I'm going to sing to you. Oh, man, I want to get back to that. I need to do that more. I want to remember who he is again and really treat him and sing about him like I'm standing before him because that's really what we're doing. But real worship provokes a response. Do you remember what happened when Mary, Lazarus' sister, it tells us this in John chapter 12 in the first eight verses. I'll summarize it quickly because we're running out of time. I should be ending now. But she pours out this costly vial of alabaster um, or, or this uh, ointment, this perfume, a very precious commodity, very precious. She poured it out on Jesus' head and Judas, because he was the treasurer, he got all indignant. He's like, what is she doing? She could have sold that thing. We could have fed 18 families for a year. What's the matter with you, woman? And Jesus says, oh, you leave her alone. She's done this for my burial. And that ointment was so costly. And she poured it out on Jesus. And isn't that like the world will always respond and say, you are being completely, you've lost your mind. You could have given that to the Father's heart ministry. You could have given that to someone. You could have given that to many charities. You could have done so many great things, and you poured out on Jesus' head, and Jesus had no problem with it. He said, this woman's going to be remembered because it's going to be recorded in Scripture, and he made sure that her name was written. And that wasn't the first time that happened either. So they brought the ark of the Lord, verse 17, and they set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, so the altar was there too because he's offering burnt offerings, right? So the altar's there. The, uh, the, the, the ark of the covenant is there now. And certainly the, 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 the lampstand and then the table of showbread and the, off, the altar of incense and then behind the veil, the Ark of the Covenant. After that, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude, men and women, a piece of meat, a piece of bread, cake of raisins. And all the people departed, everyone to his house. Notice, but David returned to his house, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and says, How glorious was the king of Israel today. You know, David, you really made a fool of yourself, and all the ladies are looking at you. And isn't that true about life and about worship, too? Whenever there's a real worship, there's always going to be somebody pointing the finger. And Michal didn't have nearly the heart that David did. Instead of getting involved in it herself and being joyous, she criticized David and put him down and, and just pointed the finger at him. And, and this is the greatest moment, and probably one of the top greatest moments in Israel's history ever. 
And isn't there always a fly in the ointment when great things happen, when God finally gets that thing in there and it's the right time, the right thing, the right king on the right throne at the right time? Everything is great, and then it's like... There's always a fly, and there's always something that comes to kill it. Some thing happens. Have you noticed that in your own life? You get something done. You've accomplished something really great. Maybe you've been waiting for years. And all you want is an hour of peace, to have a nice dinner with your spouse and enjoy the moment that you've been waiting for for so long. And all of a sudden, right when you're about ready to eat your salad before dinner, you get a phone call. <laughs> and then you ignore it. And then it keeps buzzing and keeps buzzing. Finally, you pick it up and, you know, someone in your family is, you know, in prison, you know, or been arrested or something, and then it just kills it, you know. So David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all of his house to anoint me ruler over the people, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. I love this. And I'll be even more undignified than this. Let me show you what real work. <laughs> I just love David in this. I, I want to hear the tone. I want to see the expressions on their face. Lord, can you rewind the tape and let's see this thing happen in real time, you know. And, um, and I will be humble in my own sight, but as far as the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I'll be held in honor. And therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Really unfortunate thing for this gal. But her heart was not like David's. Instead of worshiping with him, she criticized him. But worship is serious, isn't it? It's a very important thing that we do. And we worship the Lord in everything. And don't try to make it convenient. Try to resist making it easy all the time. And again, I'm not saying do something phony, but remember that at the center of worship is sacrifice. Whatever that means. It could be your time. It could be, and you know, you've got this great event to go to, but you promised... Someone at the church that you go and help out on this certain day and yet you've got this great opportunity that you, maybe you've been waiting for and you say, you know what, I'm going to go and serve. I, told, I said I was going to be there. I'm going to do it. Is it a sacrifice? Yes. Is God going to honor you for it? Yes. Sacrifice is at the heart of worship. Let's stand and pray. Thank you for hanging in there with me. I know it's long which I never do. I usually go for like 30 minutes and I'm done. But <laughs> I love this chapter, though. Don't you? There's a lot there. So, Father, we just thank you and pray that you would encourage us as we uh, just continue to grow, Lord, in our worship of you, Father. And I pray that, Father, none of us would feel guilty or feel condemned in any way, but, God, we would just examine our own hearts and everything we do and be willing to sacrifice where necessary, in whatever way it is, in whatever way it is. There are many ways that we can worship you, Lord. So help us tonight. Bless our day. Bless our day tomorrow. Get us home safely, Lord. We love you and we thank you, Jesus, for taking the greatest sacrifice that we might be heirs of the kingdom, that we might be heirs to your throne, seated with you in heavenly places. And only because of your blood, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.